As our kids make their way out to their classrooms, I invite you to grab a Bible or grab the Bible that you brought or a pew Bible and turn to the book of Deuteronomy right towards the beginning there, part of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. We're just looking at one verse this morning, Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. A lot to think about just in that short verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I'm on page 164 if you're looking at a pew Bible. I'm going to pray first and then I'm going to read it. Holy Father, here we are again before... Your word in your house, seated at your table, and ready to learn from you. And so I do pray again that you would speak to us, your people. We're gathered, we're leaning in, we're eager to hear from you. And I pray that you would help us to uh, believe your word. Um, Believe it, not just with our minds, but have it hidden in our hearts so that we carry it with us wherever we go. I pray. I do believe that you have a word of encouragement, a word of comfort, a word of truth to speak to each one of us, and so I pray that you would make your voice heard. In Christ's name, amen. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. I'll read it again. It's short. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. All right, that's our verse. That's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the secret things that belong to the Lord. We're thinking about the revealed things that belong to us. We're trying to make sense of that. And it's in the context of this Tough Topics series that we're trying to make sense of this. Uh, Next week is the first Sunday of Lent. And as as we always do every year, we're going to pick a a, a theme and go with that straight through all of the weeks of Lent. And so due to that, I'm going to put a pause on uh, the Tough Topics series sermons. Uh, I'm not done. I haven't answered all the questions. In fact, I have quite a backlog of questions that I have received that I would like to get to. I have received questions such as, why does God allow suffering? It's a good question. I have re- received a question from one of our young people who said, How, why is it that the Bible commands, thou shalt not kill, and yet God himself appears to have broken that command and wiped out all of humanity in the days of Noah. How are we to make sense of that? It's a good question. We've got a question about the origin of evil and why God created Satan. A couple of our young people up here have asked that question repeatedly, and it's a good question. It's an insightful, thoughtful question. Received two questions about burial and cremation and about the intermediate state and what happens to us after we die and before Jesus returns to earth. Those are good, good questions. Two different questions about the Lord's Day and what it means to honor that under the new covenant. Questions about the doctrine of election, questions about other doctrines. All good questions, all worthy of our consideration. I want to read you one 
One particularly heartfelt question that I received from one of our young people. Uh, I do not see him here present this morning, but I did get permission from him to read this. So uh, if you're watching at home, I don't know if you're watching, but here it is, the note that you gave me after church, and I'm going to read it. This is what it says. The young people in this church are so thoughtful, are so intelligent, and are so interested in their faith. It's amazing. It's wonderful. So a young man handed me this on his way out the door. It's probably about three weeks ago. It says this. What happens to people who never hear about Jesus and who live in a country that only knows of a false God? They might have grown up in a place where they are taught about and told to respect their false God the same way that I am taught about and told to respect the one true God. Did those people go to heaven? Also, how do we know that our God is the true God? Can I believe that he is? How do we know that Christianity isn't just another religion? I don't need proof, but... We Christians don't have any. I believe that prayers get answered, but what if that's just a coincidence? Listen to this. Will I go to heaven now? What if I'm testing God with my questions? You can read this up front if you want. I think I would actually like that. Thank you. No, thank you. We're glad that you wrote these questions. This is a young man who's putting a lot of thought into his faith, isn't it? This is a young man that cares about what he believes, cares about what we believe, and cares about the implications of those beliefs on his future, on his destiny, on his life now, and in the life to come. What a thoughtful and courageous young man. How many people write notes like this to their pastor? I didn't when I was a kid. It takes courage to ask these kind of questions, doesn't it? Well, as I said, I receive lots and lots of good and thoughtful questions, and I desire to get to them in the future. I desire to get to these questions in the future. I fully intend to do that, to revisit this series after Lent. But this morning... This morning, for this sermon, prior to the Lenten series, I want to focus on the limits of our knowledge. And I want to acknowledge the fact that while questions are good, asking questions is good, asking questions honors the Lord, some questions we don't get answers to. And we need to learn to be okay with that. Now, some of us have no problem at all with that, Uh, We don't mind not knowing the answers to all of our questions. It's just not a big deal. Some of us, though, really struggle with certain questions to the point of where those questions begin to negatively impact our faith. Some of you know what that feels like. I have an example like that in my own life. Uh, Here's the situation. It's over 20 years ago. It was the summer of 2001, and I attended a week-long apologetics conference in Chicago. Uh, Apologetics, for those of you who don't know that word, apologetics uh, has nothing to do with apologizing. Apologetics is 
the discipline of providing a defense for the truth of the Christian faith. Right? Why do we believe what we believe? What are the reasons? What is the evidence? What are, what are the proofs uh, that, that cause us to conclude that Christianity is true? Week-long conference, all about that. Every day, all week, all day, uh, we're listening to lectures about the truth of Christianity. So there was this international panel of, of, of apologists who were presenting. Uh, we heard lectures like uh, five... Five arguments for the existence of God, or ten good reasons to believe in the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or eight reasons to believe in the divine authorship of Scripture. On and on and on, lectures like that every day, all day, for a week. I came to that conference with a particular question that had been nagging me. I was listening every, every session to see if any of these presenters would speak on my topic, and no one addressed or answered my question. And so at the very end of it, the end of the last session on Friday, I stuck around and waited uh, as people came forward, like they do after conferences, to thank the speakers and whatever. I waited. Um, and I wanted to be last, because you know how it goes. If you're last, you get the time with them, right? If you're, just, if you're the middle, you, you, you feel the people behind you, and you just have to be quick and be like, thanks for coming. And so I waited. I just sat back and waited and let everyone get out, and then I came forward. I think that I, I ended up getting two. There was a panel of speakers. I ended up getting two of them to myself, and uh, one was uh, from India, and one was from Scotland. And uh, I, I said... Uh, I got a question for you guys. And the guy from Scotland said, I, I know. I can tell by the look in your eye that you have a question. What is it? And I said, I, had a, I, I was all set. I had a set up for it and everything. I said, okay, here's my question. God knows the future, right? Right. So God knows everything that's going to happen, right? Right. Okay, so God knows who's going to accept his offer of salvation and who's going to experience eternal life in his presence. And he also knows who's going to reject that offer and spend eternity separated from him in hell. Right? Right. All right. Now here's my question. If he knows that already, then why does he create people that he knows are destined for hell? Wouldn't it be better for everyone if he just peeked ahead and then did not create the people whose eternal destiny was going to land them in hell forever? Pause. The, f the first man began to speak. It was, the, it was the man who was from India. He began to give what I would call a long-winded answer with zero substance to it. <laughs> he just kept talking and talking and saying things. It's like I got the sense that this is a man that was um, used to having answers to every question that he was asked and immediately went into pro professorial uh, answering mode. And so I, I pretty quickly into his response realized uh, either he didn't know what he's talking about or I'm dumber than I thought I was <laughs> because I don't know what he's saying and it doesn't make sense to me at all. Completely unsatisfying. And uh, 
I, I just kind of stood there. I was like, okay. I think this, the, the man from Scotland, uh, I can tell you his name. His name is Stuart McAllister. He's a wonderful man. He, uh, I got to know him after this. But on, th- on this particular day, he, he kind of looked at me and he, and he said something to the effect of, uh, that didn't satisfy you, did it? And I said, no, it didn't. And he said, how about this? Try this. Don't fixate on this question. Died. In fact, what the literally, the words that he said to me is he said, I would encourage you to take this question and put it in the freezer. And I said, what? He said, well, put it aside and focus on the aspects of your faith that you do understand. Focus on living faithfully today. Focus on cultivating a Christ-like posture in your heart. And then sometime down the road, pull that question out of the freezer and give it another look. And maybe that question will look different to your future self than it looks to you right now. Now that was some of the best theological advice that I've ever been given in my life. And that brings us to the text this morning. Because in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it speaks both of the, uh, the limits of our knowledge, right? The secret things that belong to the Lord. And it also speaks of the things that we can know. The things that are revealed are given to us and our children forever. Both. There's things we cannot know, and there's things that we can know. The secret things that belong to God, I believe that that's this verse's way of saying there are some things God knows that we don't know and we won't know. We cannot know. Because for whatever reason, He has not revealed them to us. They're secret. For some reason. But there are other things that have been revealed and that we can know and that belong to us and to our children forever. They're ours. He gave them to us. And it's important for us to know the difference between the two. The things that we can know and should know and the things that we cannot. We need to know which category to put which question, right? And there's a wonderful biblical tradition of people not knowing the answers to things, right? That's all over the Bible, unanswered questions, right? Just read the Psalms. I did that this week, reading the Psalms and looking specifically for questions that get raised and not answered. They're all over the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will my heart be troubled within me? That's asked and not answered in the Psalms. Oh Lord, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I don't know. The psalmist didn't know. You've experienced that. Why does that happen? Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? Lord, why do the wicked prosper? All those questions in the Psalms. Not answered. The Bible also indicates that there are some questions that not even angels know. You remember that passage in 1 Peter in chapter 1 where he talks about things into which angels long to look? They don't know. Even angels don't know the answer to some of their questions. And of course, Jesus himself told his disciples that there were some things that he didn't know. No doubt you remember these words when he said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even angels in heaven, nor even the Son, but only the Father. That's Jesus saying he doesn't even know the answer to every single question. 
So if there are questions that the psalmist doesn't know, and there are questions that angels don't know, and there are questions that Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't know, then we're in pretty good company if we have some ongoing questions that we don't know the answer to. But that does raise the question in my mind, because I am a question asker by nature. Why can't we know these things? Why didn't he just tell us? Well, I have some thoughts about that. I think one reason, one obvious reason we can't know everything is because we're not God. That's obvious, but it's good to be reminded. Uh, that's, that's one of the defining characteristics of God is that he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows the answers to all the questions. If you and I were omniscient, if we knew all the answers to all of life's questions, we wouldn't need God. We'd be God, and that wouldn't be good. You don't want a God that you can fully understand. You might think you do, but you don't. You don't want to shrink God to the size that you can fully understand. You don't want God created in your own image. You want a God that's bigger than you. But if you have a God that's bigger than you, then inevitably there will be things about him that you don't understand. And in a weird way, unanswered questions can be faith-affirming. It's good that I don't know everything about God. That builds my faith because that means God is bigger than me. And that is a good thing. All right, but here's the next question. What's the, is, is, is there a benefit to not knowing so, the answers to some questions? What I'm getting at here is that it's not just that we have to learn to live with our limited knowledge, right? That's how I used to approach it. I'd be like, all right, fine. If I can't know everything, then, then fine. But I don't like it. <laughs> I wish I knew everything, but if i got to deal with this, then fine, I'll deal with it. What I'm saying is that that's not a healthy or helpful approach. What I'm saying is that there is actually positive benefit, blessing, to not knowing everything, and we should embrace it and celebrate it, lean into it. There's something positively good about the fact that we don't have answers to all of our questions. Like what? What's the benefit? Well, here's one. The fact that you don't have all the answers to all of your questions reinforces your sense of dependence on God. And that's a good thing. Right? Think of an area of your life where you are fully competent, where you know what you're doing, where you're the expert, where you have the answers. You can actually function as a guide for someone else who doesn't know as much as you do about that particular topic. You're the question answerer. Right? In that particular area of your life, you probably don't feel especially dependent on others because you know what you're doing. You're competent. You're independent. Now, that's a good feeling, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being an expert in your field. But if you were like that in every area of your life, where would be your sense of dependence? You'd, you'd, you'd never come to the end of your rope. You'd never hit the wall of your limitations. You'd never need outside help from other people. And I think that's one of the benefits of not knowing the answers to all of our theological questions is that it keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. It keeps us humble. It regularly reminds us that we are not self-sufficient, that we are not independent, but we're absolutely and completely dependent on God. That's a good thing. That's a blessing to be reminded of that. And that's a benefit of not knowing everything. So next time you have a collision with a hard question, with a tough topic that breaks your brain, 
and leaves you without an answer, pause right there and thank God for reminding you that he has constructed the world such that you are dependent on him and not the other way around. He is not dependent on you. Here's another benefit of questions we don't know the answer to. It imparts to us interpretive humility. Because sometimes the desire to know all the answers to all the questions is really at its root. Do you know what that is? It's a desire to be in control. Right? To have everything figured out and filed away. Right? All the theological wrinkles ironed out, smooth, everything neat and tidy, everything explained. That's my desire to be in control. That's my desire to have things ordered the way that I want them. Everything filed away in its accurate box. But I, think of it, think of your questions more like this. Think of, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't cook much in our house. I have, two, I have two jobs each week cooking. I make pizza on Saturday and I make popcorn on Sunday. That's the extent of it. That's what I do. Those aren't snacks. Those are meals. Pizza, Saturday night, popcorn Sunday night. That's what I do. So here, here's an analogy from my popcorn making. You, if you, put, the, you, you put the kernels in the, in the pot. They're, they're small. They don't look like they're going to produce much volume. But they do. And sometimes you add too many kernels to the pot, and it creates more volume than can fit in that pot. And what happens is, you know this, you're picturing it right now, the, the, the level rises and rises and rises, and then it comes up against the lid, right? Now, there's enough force in that popping popcorn to press that lid right off and overflow. Trust me, <laughs> there, there is. So what you can do in that moment as you're having a, a popover is um, you can grab onto the lid and hold it down, right? You're stronger than popcorn. You can do that. And if you hold it down... Um, you will keep the popcorn contained in the pot, but you will not get a good result, right? It's going to scorch on the bottom, and it's going to get all, like, kind of compressed, and it's not going to be a nice batch of popcorn. So the other option is you can just let it do its thing. Let it, let it overflow the pot. Let it press the lid off and then, and then overflow. Let it make a mess. It'll... It'll be messy, and you will feel like you're not in control of the situation. Uh, but it will be tasty. You will get a good batch of popcorn. So there, there, there's our metaphor. There's our picture. What I'm saying is that insisting on answers to all of my questions is like grabbing that lid and jamming it down and holding it down and saying, you're not going anywhere. I got this. You will conform to my way of doing this. And a healthier approach is to just let it overflow and say, God, God, your word and your world are too big to be contained in my little mind, right? My mind is like a pot that is too small for the batch of popcorn that you are popping, God. I get that, and I'm okay with that. I have just bumped into the limitations of my mind. And so rather than throw a tantrum about that or try to control it or try to slam the lid on it, I'm just going to embrace it. I'm going to lean into it, and I'm going to get a little bit messy here. And if we take that view, then we'll be a little bit more humble about the conclusions that we reach. 
which means we'll be a little bit more open to the views and ideas that other people have who see it differently than us. And with that, that kind of interpretive humility is a good thing because it serves as a reminder that we need each other. Right? We interpret the Bible together in community. We all bring different perspectives to the text. And even though God's word is perfect and God's word is infallible, our interpretations are not. And so we should hold them loosely. All right, a third benefit of not having all the answers to all of our questions is that it forces us to slow down and engage in careful, prayerful, meditative reading of God's word. Right? There's an interesting passage in 2 Peter in chapter 3 where Peter is actually talking about the scripture that Paul wrote. He's referring to Paul's writings, and he says in this verse that some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. That's what he writes. He says some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. Why? Paul was a good communicator, and of course God is the one who inspired the scriptures, and he's a perfect communicator. So why would a perfect communicator sometimes communicate in a way that's hard to to understand, I think the reason is, the reason why there are hard passages in our Bibles is because it slows us down and causes us to look and listen and read and read again and think about it and ask questions of others and read again. And through that whole process, do you know what we're doing? Spending time with God. And do you know what's happening during that time? We're drawing near to Him and deepening our relationship with Him. If every question we had was easy and obvious and we immediately knew the answer, we'd never have to spend time wrestling through it. If the meaning of every passage of Scripture was obvious, then we could just read it once and we'd have it. But the fact that some passages are difficult and that some questions don't have obvious answers forces us to wrestle and to linger and to think and to spend time and to draw near to God in ways that we wouldn't if we knew everything. Sometimes the journey of wrestling with our questions is more important than the destination of finding the answer. All right, fourth and last, having unanswered questions builds character. I used to hate it when my parents say things, things built character, but that is, in fact, how life works. The hard things in life build our character, not the easy things. Easy things are nice. Easy things are good. I like easy things, but it's the hard things that build character, right? When I was a kid, I loved baseball. I still do. Baseball is one of those sports where even the most exceptional and successful players fail more than half the time. And that's good, right? A player, a really good batting average in baseball is a batting average of 300. A player that hits 300 gets a hit 3 out of 10 at-bats. That means that player makes an out 7 out of 10 times. And that's called success. I could hardly handle that when I was a kid. Right? I'd get so angry when I would strike out. I wanted to get a hit every single time. To me, nine hits out of ten was failure, because what about that one? Looking back on it, though, that wouldn't have been good for my character if I was to get a hit every single time. If I would have got a hit every at-bat, I would have been impossible to be around. 
I would have never learned anything. I would have never developed any character. It was my failures that forced me to come to grips with my limitations. It was my failures that shaped my character. And in the same way, it can be hard to have real questions, the kinds of questions that keep you up at night, and to not have answers. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. But oftentimes it's through those hard things that God is shaping us and forming us into the people that he wants us to be. And we might not have access to those lessons if we had all the answers to all of our questions. All right, and that brings us to our, the final point of the sermon this morning. What should we do with our questions? Right? We've acknowledged that some of our questions uh, are, are big and weighty. Right? And we all have questions. We've heard now four benefits or blessings of having unanswered questions. Hopefully that's encouraging. But still, how should we handle it when questions arise? Well, here's a, let me give you a proposed course of action for when we have questions. First, seek the answers. Right? That's obvious, but worth saying. Uh, just, just because uh, we, we don't get answers to all of our questions doesn't mean we don't get answers to any of our questions. We do. Questions are good. The Bible encourages us to ask questions. The Bible provides clear and helpful answers to many of our questions. So don't be lazy. If you have a question, put forth the effort and attempt to see what the Bible has to say about that question, and you might be surprised. Don't just say, well, I got a question, and nobody's possibly going to be able to answer that. Well, check and see. Maybe the Bible has answered that question. You might find a very satisfying answer in the pages of Scripture. But second, as you're pursuing the answers to your questions, don't put your trust, don't put your faith in yourself. Don't put your faith in your intellect. Put your trust in God. Okay? Especially when you bump into questions that you don't know the answer to, trust God. There's such a wonderful phrase right smack in the middle of the book of Mark. I was just speaking with someone here um, a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, but about this passage from Mark, in the middle of Mark, and how helpful it is in these circumstances. There's a man speaking with Jesus, and at one point he says, and whenever I read it, I don't picture him saying it, I picture him kind of shouting it. He's at the end of his tether, and he says this phrase, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? That's a cry of faith. I think purposely put right in the middle of the book of Mark by the author, Mark, so that it gets highlighted. Because it's a model to us of what faith looks like. Faith doesn't look like knowing all the answers all the time. Faith looks like, I believe, help my unbelief. Sooner or later, that's the cry of most of us, right? Lord, I do trust you. I do. I do believe you. I do. But I want you to know, sometimes it's hard. It is. And so, yes, I believe. But also, please Help my unbelief. I need some help. I'll give you, I'll give you my go-to illustration for this point. I've used it before here. You've heard it. Um, I, could, I could right now pause. I could call up any single catechism kid looking at you, and they could come up, and they could tell this, they could tell this illustration for you because we just talked about it in catechism. They know where I'm going with this. 
one of my children, my firstborn, had uh, hated, she had just had a hard, hard time with her car seat. She hated her car seat. Some kids love it. Some kids, it knocks them right out. Not that one. She, uh, she hated it. She struggled. She fought. She screamed. She cried. Her head turned bright red. Uh, it was awful. <laughs> we, I used to, my, I, we lived about an hour away from my parents at the time, and I just have, I, I've been scarred. <laughs> an hour of a screaming baby in a small car. So I would, it got to the point where, where she would see it coming, right? I'd bring her out to the car. She, 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 she could tell where this was going. She knew the, the, the torture seat was coming. And so I'd lay her in it nice and gentle, using a nice comforting voice. And as soon as she would start to feel it, she did this thing where she would arch her back. She was so good at it that I couldn't get the buckle <laughs> over her body. She's just like a fish, like flopping and arching and squirming. And so in that moment, what I did not do, what I never even thought to do, what, what, what would have been totally unhelpful, is give her a lecture about physics. That's what's at play here, right? This is a physics issue, right? Honey, little Lois, objects in motion tend to stay in motion, honey. And if we come to an abrupt halt, your body will not halt. It will fly. And so we have this seat it straps you in, and it holds you in. No, 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 no. That w- she didn't have ears for that. She didn't want to hear that. And even if I would have said that, and it all was true, right? That's true. That's the right answer. It would have meant nothing to her. Nothing. It would have just frustrated her, right? Because she was not in a position where she could understand the principles that were at play there. Do you know what she was in a position to do? Trust me. Right? And so that's what I told her. I would put her in there. I would... As, Gently as possible, press her down. (laughs) Hold her with one hand. I got very good at it. Put the strap in with the other hand and say, honey, you're just going to have to trust me. (laughs) I love you so much. I know what's good for you, and this is what's good for you. Give her a little kiss on her forehead. That's it. You got to trust me. You got to trust me. I know, and you don't. That's us. That's us sometimes. When it comes to our unanswered questions, when we feel like we are breaking our brains, when we feel like this is shaking our faith, when we are staring at the ceiling at 3 o'clock in the morning, wondering, what is the answer to this question? Why, God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, why are you not paying attention to this? God, why does it work like this? God, what about this? How come this? Because this doesn't seem fair, and this part seems inconsistent. And what about this? All these questions... And I believe that God comes to us in those moments and says, look, I know you don't understand. (laughs) But here's the thing. Even if I explained it to you, you wouldn't understand. So you're just going to have to trust me. One day, maybe you'll look back and understand. Right? Lois gets it now. But maybe... One day you'll never look back and understand. Maybe you'll never get it. But either way, you're going to have to trust me. And over the years and over the centuries and over the millennia, God has proven himself faithful and worthy of our trust. And so we can give him the benefit of the doubt. Right? 
We can give him the benefit of the doubt. We can trust him even when we don't understand, even when we don't get our questions answered. Okay? So first, seek the answers. Second, trust him. Put your trust in God and not in your own intellect. And third, when you find yourself in a situation like that, it's a good idea to focus on what we do know instead of fixating on what we don't. Right? So let's go back to my question that I opened this sermon with, that I brought to um, the, the, the apologists, the, the international smart guys that were supposed to have the answer. I took that question to them. I didn't get an answer to it, but I, I, then I took the question and I put it in the freezer, just like Stuart told me to do. Put it in the freezer. Three years later, I pulled that thing out, put it on the counter, and defrosted it. I looked at it, and as I looked at that question, I still didn't know the answer. But during the intervening three years, I had matured a lot spiritually. And so as I stared at that question, I was a different person than the one who was asking three years ago. And I very specifically remember saying to God, Lord, I still don't know why you would create someone if you know they're going to spend eternity separated from you in hell. But here's what I do know. I know that your character, God, was revealed to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And I know that he was and is the perfect embodiment of love. And I know that everything he did was loving. And in fact, I know that the whole reason that he came to earth was to lay down his life in order to redeem us. And I know that you're loving God, and I know that you're just. And I know, because the Bible tells me, that you do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. I know that you are slow to anger, and I know that you are quick to forgive, and I know that you always do what is right. And so, even though I don't know the answer to my question, I do trust you. I trust that you're loving. I trust that you're just. And I trust that whatever the answer to my question is, that it's loving and it's just. And one day, maybe you'll reveal that answer to me, and maybe one day you won't, but either way, I trust you. And then I took that question, and I put it back in the freezer. And that act of trust and faith had the effect of drawing me closer to God and deepening my relationship with God, and I never would have experienced that if I had an answer to my question right away. And from time to time, I pull that question back out and defrost it and have a look at it, and I believe that now I do have insights into that question that at least I find satisfying. Not a complete answer, but the beginning of an answer that makes sense to me and that lines up with the biblical data, that lines up with the character of God. But since this isn't a sermon about that question, I'll just leave it at that for now. Here's the final thing to do in the face of our unanswered questions. The last thing is this. In the face of an unanswered question, we worship. We worship. We fall to our knees in fear and in trembling, in adoration, and we declare, you are God, and we are not, and we worship you. It's the words of Romans 11, right? 
After a hugely dense theological section of Romans, we get to the end of chapter 11 and Paul breaks out into worship and says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Answer, no one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Answer, no one. For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's worship. That's the proper ultimate response to our unanswered questions. Lord, your judgments are unsearchable, your ways are inscrutable, and so we worship you. And we will follow you in obedience, so please show us the path of faith and help us to walk it. Reveal to us, Lord, as much as we need to know in order that we might live lives of faithfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I just want to pray and thank you for unanswered questions. Thank you for the blessing of positioning us such that we don't know everything. Thank you for not answering questions that I have at times stayed up late at night wondering and questioning and asking and I thank you that you haven't revealed everything to us. I thank you for the ways that you use unanswered questions to humble us and to build our faith and to draw near to us and to equip us to serve others. There's so many, so many good and positive things that come from unanswered questions and there can be so much, so much arrogance and anger and desire to control behind our demanding answers to our questions. And so I pray that you would help us to know what we can know. We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to throw up our hands and say we can't know anything. We can. The things that you have revealed, you've given to us. You've given to our children and they're ours forever. And so we want to know what we can know. We're not looking to get out of the hard work of seeking answers. But we also want to humbly acknowledge that we, we do not and we will not, and we cannot know everything, and that that is good too. In your name we pray. Amen.